Welcome to Media Roots Radio. How's everybody doing out there? This is Robbie Martin again. And just so our new Patreon subscribers and our new listeners know, um, this podcast is normally a two-person sort of co-hosting podcast. My actual sibling and sister, who's an awesome person, Abby Martin, is normally my co-host on this podcast. She had her first child in June, and so she's taking a little break from the podcast. And I just want to give a shout out to her and Mike. Love you guys. Hope you're doing well out there if you're listening. Miss you, Abby. Our listeners miss you too. Everybody is anticipating your arrival back to the podcast. And I don't know when that's going to happen, but Abby might be back uh, for another episode this month. Um, It won't be permanent. She's not coming back for all four episodes the month after that. But So you guys are stuck with me for a little bit longer. I hope you don't mind. And today's episode is going to be about pretty much everything going on uh, for the last month that I didn't get a chance to talk about on Media Roots before. And I know my last solo episode, which was like a true solo episode, which was a roundup of subjects that have been happening in the news, um, I was pretty fired up for that episode. And I'm still I'm pretty fired up today. I don't know if I'm as sort of angry um, as I was when I recorded that previous podcast, but I needed to get a lot of that off my chest, and I'm glad that I did it. I hope I opened people's eyes about basically what this whole setup and op is that has largely actually kind of seeped into the left of where all this anti-China propaganda is coming from. And it's primarily coming from two think tanks in D.C., Um, that have their tentacles now in the anti-war scene via the Hudson Institute and the Committee on the Present Danger China. And it's interesting because both think tanks have hardcore PNAC neocons in them. Scooter Libby is the vice chair who makes $300,000 a year from the Hudson Institute. But what is happening, the main thing that is happening right now that I wanted to talk about are these extremely dangerous escalations that have happened between the United States and China. And I'm not saying that it's mutual. I'm not saying that China is saber rattling back necessarily. These are all pretty much U.S. driven escalations. This has gone way beyond just a trade war. This has gone beyond just a information war. This is now actually already in Cold War territory. And what's really scary and strange about this situation is it does seem to be going towards more of a hot war scenario. And to join me today on the first half of this podcast is a writer and a journalist that I've been following pretty closely lately named Dave DeCamp. And Dave uh, writes for antiwar.com and has been really, really on point and following this situation that I just described to you very, very closely. So first I'm going to play about an hour-long interview with Dave, where we go through all these recent escalations and give you some context for all of them. And after that, uh, it's just going to be me by myself uh, for another hour. Hear what Dave and I had to say about this situation. 
So yeah, Dave, as I told you, I was making an attempt to catalog all these recent escalations between the U.S. and China um, that's been happening in the last few months. And uh, I was attempting to do this on Media Roots, and halfway through recording myself ranting about all this, I realized I just kept name-dropping you and pulling up your articles and reading from them. So I figured, why not just have Dave on this the, the podcast <laughs> instead of just me rambling by myself um, and actually have you be part of this discussion so we can really nail down what the hell is actually happening right now and and really also try to stress to people how dangerous this is. And just because it's not being heavily covered in the media, it's still very, very dangerous. And I know maybe some people there's a disconnect there because even the alt media, alternative media, is not doing a great job covering this. You're one of the only people out there who's really been covering this regularly. There's some other people. There's Gray Zone, Black Agenda Report. People have also been covering this. They just did a panel uh, sort of an activist ac- advocacy panel of why we should not go to war with China. But we're not seeing a whole lot of that in this larger scene of anti-war libertarianism, even among Green Party people, you know, the left or the right in general. So this is why I need you, Dave, because you're <laughs> you're doing a really good job covering this stuff. And, you know, there's other reporters individually covering individual stories, but you're covering sort of the whole trajectory. I guess first I just want to ask you how's it going because I haven't really had a chance to personally check in with you. I mean like are you doing well? This is a stressful time, so just wanted to check in with you about that first. Yeah, um I've been uh doing good. Uh, I live with my wife in Brooklyn. Um most of my family's out on Long Island or a lot of them moved down south, so things were a little crazy here in the city, but um we're doing okay. I mean it's just me and my wife we're both young and healthy. But uh, yeah, I just want to say I really appreciate you inviting me on. I know I've told you that you and your sister, Empire Files and Media Roots Radio, really kind of sent me down the anti-imperialist rabbit hole, um, really started me caring about this stuff. And um, it's part of the reason why I'm working for antiward.com today. So I don't want to geek out too much, but I just, you know, it's cool. It's awesome to be on here. Well, that's that's so that's really great to hear because you your writings have influenced me and have really helped me understand the situation better so that's sort of a nice synchronistic feedback loop if you will if (laughs) if we've helped you get on that course and then you're helping me keep me really informed about this china escalation so yeah 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 well yeah i mean that's part of the reason why i wanted like i i had all this anger and i didn't know what to do when i just figured the independent media is you know you just got to People just got to be more informed, and independent media is so important. So that's why I decided to get involved. And antiwar.com, they took a chance on me, and I've just been working hard for them. So, but yeah, and and the the China, as far as the China stuff, I was, I mean, 2020 started off with a bang with the assassination of uh, Soleimani, the the Iranian general that Trump uh, killed. So that was and and Iraq was hot for a while. So I was kind of, I was following that like really closely. And then I noticed with the pandemic that things really turned up on China, like watching Tucker Carlson. And then you did that episode, the two parter about all that, like the Committee on Presence Danger. And that's when I was kind of like because I noticed there was a lack of people covering it. So that's when I realized, like, OK, I got to really start paying attention to this because this is really dangerous. Yeah, and I really appreciate that you saw that 
void and you jumped into it because I feel that that's what more people in the scene need to be doing. And I, and I just really appreciate that you've done that because there are so many like blind spots and areas that I, I, I think even some really good leftists or even really good anti-war libertarians, they will ignore it until there's sort of a safe position to take on it. And I, I'm not saying this for everybody, but I think in general, it's like harder to commit to a position if you don't necessarily know where everybody stands or how, you know, maybe they're worried about people that, you know, think China is really evil. So they don't want to like be in a position where they appear to be defending China. I'm coming at this more from a anti-war point of view that clearly all of this, most of the propaganda or most of the coverage we're seeing about China right now is sort of manipulative propaganda meant to make us afraid or make us angry at China or make us feel that Chinese surveillance is, you know, a bigger deal than, you know, Silicon Valley here or the NSA or CIA or whatever. So um, that's, I, I think I just want to encourage if anybody listening now, if you want to get into independent journalism, think about doing what Dave's done and actually jump into some of these areas that are just not being covered enough. You know, I mean, so, but but then again, Dave, there is sort of the factor of clickbait also that, you know, there is a there is a money drive and a sort of a drive to get your stuff more clicks and this the the stuff that's just covering important topics that other people aren't covering doesn't necessarily fall under that clickbait category. So again, I just I just want to give you more praise. Hats off to you for actually <laughs> doing this. Um because yeah, it's not, you know, you're not rolling in dough and getting like monet, you know, uh, super chat money on your YouTube streams for this. <laughs> but let me just ask you, I guess, to start off the discussion. You know, you've written some important pieces in cataloging these major escalations between the United States and China. NPR just put out a timeline uh, going back to April 2020, showing escalations until late July. And sadly, this is one of the only outlets I've seen actually show a timeline of this. What do you think uh, is probably one of the most dangerous escalations that we've seen between the U.S. and China, let's just say since the pandemic has started? I would say, I mean, there's there's been a lot, and they're all very dangerous in their own ways. Even the trade war and the uh, talks of like decoupling from China that tr uh, Trump talks about and Peter Navarro and his trade advisors discuss. But I think the one thing that risks a military conflict the most is the South China Sea and the increased military activity there. And then obviously Taiwan, since you know, 1979, China has, there's been threats of China, you know, taking Taiwan. Um, maybe I'm just paying more attention to it now, but, but that's also an issue. And it's, um, there's steps that the Trump administration has taken to support Taiwan more. They want to go to war if, if China uh, tries to take Taiwan by force. So that's pretty, that's pretty scary, but that's something that's been going on for a long time. This South China Sea, I mean, it really started uh, under Obama with China uh, making claims in the Spratly Islands and the Parasol Islands. They're like these archipelagos that are they're reefs and rocks in the, on the other side of the world that don't seem very important to me. But for U.S. global you know, hegemony, it, it, it's, it is very important um, for the U.S. empire to control the waterways and 
the probably the increased military activity in the South China Sea and the Trump administration's recent move to formally reject uh, China's claims there, I would say that that risks an accident the most. An accident, I mean, like a you know two ships um, firing on each other or planes crashing into one another. Um, and now with the diplomatic relations like getting so bad, I, I don't, I don't, I can't say that it would just a freak accident would be able to be solved di- diplomatically right now. It could turn into a, a, a war. I mean, there is a real, it sounds crazy, a war between the U.S. and China. I mean, it's an unthinkable thing, but these provocations are making that unthinkable thing that would could destroy the entire world. Are, they're making it more, uh, more real, the threat of it more real. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, I was thinking originally that this could just turn into another Cold War scenario, and you know we could just use China as the new evil empire, more of the you know in the style of the classic Cold War. Because when I say Cold War 2.0 with Putin's Russia, it's not really the same because they're not a communist country. It doesn't have the same necessarily the same usefulness. Um, it you know it does sort of create a geopolitical foe to to sort of you know bounce all this energy off of and scaremonger about and uses a hate avatar but communist china in some ways seems like almost like a perfect insert to replace you know the evil empire of russia in this in this modern era but what you're saying and i agree with you is that this south china sea provocations by the united states are perhaps showing something different that this is not just a cold war it's not just an economic trade war it's actually aiming to provoke China militarily on some level. I mean, you know, that's maybe the more cynical view. You know, American policymakers would probably say this is just sort of to, you know, show China that they that they can't be imperialist, you know, in the in the South China Sea, but you and I know that a lot of this stuff in the past is designed to provoke and even the nation which is not known for being, you know, great on foreign policy. They even had an article last month saying that Trump appears to be creating a Gulf of Tonkin-like scenario in the South China Sea. Um, yeah, and I don't know, Dave. I mean, I'm fairly ignorant on exactly what China's claim is over that region of the world. What these actual islands are? Can you like explain for someone like me? What was the actual rhetoric or what did Obama's administration originally say about this? And what did China do something like to provoke that response from the Obama administration? Like what exactly happened to start that pivot? So China, they lay claim to most of the South China Sea, by what they call the nine dash line. It's kind of a line drawn near the coast of the Southeast Asian countries like the Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia and in Around 2012, 2013, they started building airstrips on the Spratly Islands and um, research facilities there. And this is something that um, other countries have done in the region. Vietnam and the Philippines have built up um, these reefs. And uh, so China, you know, kind of got in on it and they did it. You know, they made some pretty bold claims. They were claiming a lot of a lot of territory. So in 2015, you know, this was an issue between the Obama administration and, and China, them laying these claims to these islands. And there's accounts from diplomats that said China said, you know, they're not going to militarize these islands. And in 
September 2015, in my piece about the South China Sea uh, that I wrote recently, it's called The U.S. Has No Place in the South China Sea Dispute. In September 2015, Xi Jinping pledged publicly that he was not going to militarize the Spratly Islands. Now, this is September 2015. A month later, in October 2015, the Obama administration ran what they call the Freedom of Navigation Operation, which is when they sail Navy warships um, near these islands. Um, they've been doing them in Venezuela lately, too, but it was kind of uh, a unique thing to the South China Sea. They've done them in other places, but in 2015, it really they started doing them a lot there. And it's pretty clear if you look at the timeline. I mean, I'm sure China might have had their own designs of militarizing these waters, but I really think the how quickly they've done it is in response to these phonaps is the abbreviation for them that like within 12 nautical miles of these islands uh US navy warships were were going were sailing through that's absolutely absurd i i just want to stop you really quick i mean just i mean this is an obvious point but just think of a chinese battleship or an aircraft carrier of some kind was 12 nautical miles away from the united states i mean remember how freaked out people got <laughs> when that russian ship that wasn't even like a warship was was outside the you know close to our territorial waters in connecticut or something yeah. No, I mean, it does it's seem ridiculous. like a cliche, like a, almost like a cliche point to make. But I mean, really think about it because we sail ships between through the Taiwan Strait. That's why I think that, that China has been really building up their Navy. They have a pretty formidable Navy because they want to be able to beat the U.S. in a in a war in the Pacific because we're all over there. I mean, we surround them, Okinawa and uh, South Korea and the Philippines and um yeah we're all over there so one thing I, I think people ignore through all this too is that you know japan isn't a fully autonomous country necessarily they have military occupation by the united states but they've also sort of been empowered and emboldened by not just the trump administration but also previous administrations to be more hawkish towards china to also be take a more aggressive posture so all these pieces are sort of you know, being put into place. And I think you're right that this, this did provoke, you know, China's uh, quick buildup of some of these capabilities seems to be in direct response to some of these pieces that we've put in place. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about emboldening, you know, us allies in the region. Well, so first I'll say in July, uh, last month, um, the U S like formally rejected all of China's claims, not all of them, like about 90%. Of their claims to the South China Sea um, under the guise of international law, um, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is um, like an international treaty that basically lays out what claims countries have to the waters that surround them. And so the, interestingly <laughs> is that the United States didn't never ratified this treaty. So the U.S. is not a party to this treaty. No shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait a second. That's hilarious. Yeah, I and it's not obligated <laughs> by it. Yeah. That is the funniest shit ever. I See, I did not get that from the articles I read about it. I just assumed. that's So that's the trick. The, the U.S., when they want to, acts <laughs> like the they, trick, they yeah. trust or they, they've deferred the U.N. What a bunch of fucking bullshit. Sorry, continue. Yeah. So, so they've like the U.S. It's one of those treaties, kind of like the comprehensive test ban, like the test, the ban on nuclear tests. The U.S. has signed it, but it was never, 
it was never ratified by the Senate, which it needs to be. So technically, we could do whatever we want in this department. A country has an exclusive economic zone, they call it, which is the waters like 200 nautical miles off the coast. They have the rights to the resources and everything there. So the U.S. said that some of these islands that China claimed are not technically islands, they're rocks, which is under this treaty, then they only get the right to a territorial zone, which is 12 nautical miles around the island. So it's like this technicality. They're siding with a, there was a tribunal, an international tribunal in 2016 um, that the Philippines brought China to for these, these issues. And the U.S. is basically siding with that tribunal. It's saying that the waters within 200 nautical miles of the Philippines, the, the China, China has no right to them. And that these features they lay claim to are rocks and they only have the 12 nautical miles around them. So that's that's how the U.S. is justifying, like, you know, officially rejecting them by siding with this tribunal. So just so I understand that correctly, are they so is this saying that the Spratly Islands that China has now laid claim to, they're saying that they only have rights to 12 nautical miles like around each one of those individual islands? Yeah. And it's not all of them because there's. One some, one feature, I forget the name of it, um, that's within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone that they that was named by Pompeo when he made this announcement. You know, I'm not sure on the specific details, but there's some islands that I guess they're um, saying are China's, but and but there's others that they're saying that they're not. But anyway, so they rejected most of their their claims to the sea under this. Tribunal ruling. Yeah. And just so we understand how th- what this is designed to do, because it's like, okay, we could sort of dissect this policy, but what is it actually meant to do? And clearly, I mean, I want you to talk about this too, but it seems to me that it's meant to basically, it's not just to draw a line in the sand. It's basically to tell China, oh, no, you're already on red. You're not allowed to be there. It's like, imagine like yeah. playing a game where, you know, you're supposed to be on the green or the red. And if you're on the red, <laughs> you've lost. You you change China's color from green to red without them n- noticing. And you're like, oh, no, you actually already lost. You're already standing in red. Yeah. It's a total trick. Uh, I mean, but this is how U.S. foreign policy has worked for decades. But, like, how do you see it actually playing out? Do you are, – are there any scenarios you read about, you know, that maybe the U.S. has gamed out or wants to do here? One of the reefs in the Spratly Islands that's technically in the Philippines, you know – economic zone they named and china has like a little airstrip there and stuff so technically i mean if you get into like the the legal aspect of it and the international law and the treaties we have a mutual defense treaty with the philippines so it's like are we does that mean that we're going to go to war over that reef with china it's really tough to say what this this is really just another way for us to you know ratchet up the tensions with beijing but like what the reality, like what this really means, this declaration, I, I don't know if it really means that much, if it's more just symbolic. Sure. But it did it did do something because Duterte, um, the president of the Philippines, this is pretty interesting, this timeline. Last year in 2019, he said he wanted to kick U.S. forces out. Uh-huh. Um, we're not there on like a permanent basis. It's like some kind of rotational and there's a treaty, and there's a mutual defense treaty. Meaning, if the Philippines are invaded, we're supposed to defend them. And in like June, uh, he reversed that decision, citing tensions in the South China Sea. And 
So the Philippines, they never formally recognized that tribunal ruling until the day before Pompeo announced, made that announcement. So it was obviously with the foresight that the U.S. was changing their official policy on it. So this president, Duterte, this country that didn't, that was ready, they were ready to kick us out. They don't even want us there. And that's the country we've chosen to like use as our tool to stick a finger in the face of China. It's just like, it's just absurd. Yeah, it is. It's strange. I actually was not tracking the the Philippines side of it all. That's that's fascinating. Um, and that lines up with you know things I, I've already read about the situation. Well, just one example that came to mind. You said that there's already an airstrip that China has built, uh, presumably for military aircraft uh, out there. So technically, if the U.S. upholds this, this is not just some kind of them blowing smoke. Um, then that would mean that like they can't fly their planes. I mean, I'm assuming that they're or 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 launch a boat from there without you know they're not allowed to. Like it's it's technically not their. You know, we're saying it, that they can't do what they've probably already been doing all yeah. the time. So that's you know that's just one thing I I need to stress to people is that China's already doing these things that we're saying are elite. We've just declared are illegal. You know, using this bullshit. UN rationalization for it. The U.S. has run a lot of naval exercises in the South China Sea over the past few years. But in, in July, um, there was two aircraft carriers in the waters for the first time since 2017. And they ran like massive drills, like hundreds of planes were taken off. And um, they did that twice in July, which is pretty big uh, provocation. Um, have this like massive show of naval force because there are carrier strike groups so that includes all like destroyers and all other types of um, Navy ships. And uh, another thing that happened in July, um, this is according to a Beijing uh, based think tank. They they recorded a record number of U.S. Um, military like surveillance flights in the South China Sea and some stuff pretty close to China's coast. Um, there's there's like over. They counted over 50 flights by U.S. military aircraft in the region in the first three weeks of July. So that's another aspect of it. And they, I read the South China Morning Post like a lot. Um, they're a Hong Kong-based newspaper. They have really good military news and analysts and stuff. Uh, and they and their analysts that they talk to, it's a lot of China-based people, military experts. Their concern is that the U.S. these U.S. Planes, they don't have any communication with uh, China's uh, Air Force and the Chinese planes that are flying around, too. So an accident can happen. And there, there was a, a collision between a U.S. plane and a Chinese plane in 2001. Oh, I was just um, going to mention that shit. Dude, yeah, talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Right before uh, 9-11, too, which is so crazy. I mean, not like a few months before. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hainan Island, it was nearby. Um, which is technically China's like southernmost territory, and it's a big island in the South China Sea. And the U.S. like spy plane crashed into a PLA. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a fighter jet or what, but um, the U.S. the American pilot survived, and the Chinese pilot died. And it was like a big diplomatic, you know, incident for George W. Bush. So yeah, I mean, it just increases the risk of stuff like that. And that was right after we bombed their embassy in Belgrade too. We did some stuff to China there in the early 2000s. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing because now people are starting to bring up the China, you know, not to get too sidetracked. And maybe we can actually use this to get into the uh, the Uyghur discussion. Um, but a lot of people have been now mentioning that Afghanistan is an imperial project, was partly done to stop or to disrupt the One Belt, One Road initiative that's long been sort of, you know, attempted by China. And uh, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, you know, Scott Horton and I had a long discussion about it, and I, I largely agree with his take on it, but I just want to know, just what do you personally think about that? And and the fact that people are now talking about that again, because that's barely been mentioned that China may have played a role in this whole war on terror project. I mean, PNAC's Rebuilding America's Defenses brings up China twice as much as it brings up Russia. That's something that yeah. I think we probably need to go back and look at again. Yeah, no, that's interesting, because that's something I kind of just started thinking about myself, and it's through Scott. And he interviewed Michael Clare recently. Who um, he actually wrote that nation piece you mentioned, the Gulf of Tonkin okay. thing. My, um, he's a Tom dispatch guy. Yeah, because you're right. Because rebuilding America's defenses, it was all about. It was a lot about China. Now I I don't know if how much that had to do with the invasion of Afghanistan. It's definitely something I I got to look into because they were talking about it and uh, Dick apparently Dick Cheney spoke about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely a reason why we don't want to leave Afghanistan now is the, the one belt, one road, um, initiative. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it could have, it might not have played a huge role. It's possible it didn't play a huge role in the decision to invade, but it's definitely playing maybe an even bigger role now to stay. Yeah. And, and it's also interesting to kind of reflect back on Maybe there was a long time split between sort of the foreign policy realist hawks like the Kissinger, Brzezinski. <laughs> yeah, Brzezinski. You know, yeah. those guys and sort of the more hardcore, like xenophobic, you know, anti China neocons, like from I don't know what administration, you know, but there did seem to be, you know, if Dick Cheney was, as you're saying, one of these guys, it's interesting to think maybe there was a, there's a split going back many decades between these two camps of people in terms of the approach to China and maybe some of these people, I don't know. I mean, it's just interesting because being hawkish on China and wanting to wage war with them is not something that a lot of these think tanks have openly talked about, you know, and I I don't know if that's even worth going back and looking at, but now I'm going off on a total (laughs) different tangent. One of the reasons this has come up again is because Uyghurs, apparently there are um, there is a contingent of Uyghurs in Afghanistan. You know, I think you and I largely agree on this idea, tackling the subject of the Uyghurs in China as this new humanitarian crisis, because this is what's now being pushed out in a lot of neoliberal media. This is sort of the neoliberal media, mainstream media version of China's bad. I mean, they are blasting out other stuff about TikTok and Zoom and things like that, but it's mostly, would you say that it's mostly trying to capture people's attention via the Uyghur situation? Does it does it seem that way to you? It does, yeah. The Uyghur okay. thing seems to be like the main thing that they're going for now. Yeah, and the right-wing media, is, that's not been their approach necessarily, even though they definitely talk about that a lot. It's mostly yeah. being used to capture the minds of liberals. I think even the, yeah, some leftists uh, that I see, like Marxist even. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, uh, it's a lot like Tibet, how Tibet was sure. kind of a... Th- a way to get the American liberal caring about China. 
when they normally wouldn't. Yeah. But I think you and I largely agree on this idea that it's not, you know, it's maybe not that valuable right now to try to, uh, red pill people on this idea that that Uyghurs in China are being locked up because they're quote-unquote terrorists or extremists. Now, that's not the best framing <laughs> to use from you know an anti-war perspective here if we're trying to de-escalate things with China. Now we're actually seeing the Trump administration react. You know, they're acting yeah. like they care about Uyghurs now. Yeah, which is... That's one of the things about the whole situation is that you have these people. I mean, like you pointed out in your podcast about the Committee on Present Danger, like Frank Gaffney acting like he cares about the persecution of Uyghur Muslims. But there is uh, – so th- there's been sanctions over Xinjiang, um, and it's become a big part of the rhetoric. And I mean I, I haven't really – written much about this i've been kind of i, I got to do more research on it um and i think it definitely is like you know in, an important part of the story that there is like a uh east turkestan separation movement and the cia it looks like they have been involved with that there's weaker groups in syria fighting in syria there probably still are in idlib and in afghanistan the one, one thing i will say is that u.s intervention just like in hong kong foreign interference um will just make things worse it'll just give china the if if they are really clamping down that bed if they are it'll it just gives them the excuse to do it more because they say look it's foreign nobody likes foreign intervention look at russia gave in the united states for the past four years the threat of foreigners meddling is an you know an excuse to do a lot of things (laughs) it's it's really fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, I I can't speak to the idea that you know they were some of them were used as proxy forces to attack China because I don't really know much about it. But I I just also want to say that you know Uyghurs are a very very large sort of ethnic minority of of Muslim people. It's it's a diverse group in and of itself. But the majority of them probably don't commit violence and and things like that. So just like any other, I always have to mention that because. We've sort of, you know, after the era of ISIS, it just, I think it's just gotten too easy to be like that, this group, you know, are extremists or X, Y, or Z. But yeah, the, the like idea, the Wahhabi, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've brought that up in the past. And I think that that's an important distinction. So has Scott. All these reporters, without any exception that I've seen, including, let's move to Hong Kong now, including the two, you know, main media moguls. These, these sort of freedom-loving media moguls, uh, one of whom who just got arrested by the Hong Kong police. But we have here Joshua Wong and Jimmy Lai, who both of them seem to have no problem associating with some of the most hardcore neocon psychopaths in Washington, D.C. and parts of the national security state here. And I'm just wondering, could we maybe give them some, both of them the benefit of the doubt that they're just using whatever tools is easiest for them to beat China over the head with, or, or I don't know. I mean, it's just, it just seems really sketchy that these two guys are representing the Hong Kong democracy movement in terms of freedom of the press there. And they're both meeting, chumming it up with John Bolton, you know, retweeting Trump, talking about how much they love Trump. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, 
it's just stupid. Like it, like if I was Joshua Wong and I really wanted Hong Kong to remain, you know, independent, autonomous from Beijing, like pleading. He went to DC in 2019. He made a few trips there. I think his first was in 2016, and he met with Marco Rubio and all these neocons. But he testified before Congress and pleaded for intervention from the United States. And Jimmy Lai, same, uh, I don't know if he was part of that trip, but in 2019, he met with Bolton, he met with Pence. And like I said before, and if you look at their nat- the new national security law, it's like foreign interference is their excuse to, to do all this. I wrote a story in September 2019, a group of protesters in Hong Kong, they marched to the U.S. consulate waving American flags with signs that said, President Trump, come liberate Hong Kong, pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act to the U.S. consulate. And it's like, what are you asking for here? What can they, and what can the, and for the U.S. is is role, like, let's just look at this in the framework of, okay, you care about people in Hong Kong having freedom from mainland China. Let's say that's what you care about. If you're Trump, if you're Marco Rubio, if you're Joshua Wong, the U.S. passing legislation and like, what can the United States do in this situation? That we've no, there's no power to stop anything. I mean, it's just so stupid. I, I, I know U.S. foreign policy is generally like really short-sighted and stupid, but this just seemed like it just didn't make any sense. Like this, this approach, uh, and the, and then we know like the National Endowment for Democracy is involved in Hong Kong, and um, protesters were seen with a consulate, a U.S. consulate official. Like, there's a lot of U.S interference going on here. After the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, it required an annual report from the State Department to see how autonomous uh, Hong Kong is from Beijing. And if it's not found to be sufficiently autonomous, then the U.S. gets rid of the special trade status for Hong Kong. So that happened. So can you just uh, tell me if you remember who led that particular legislation, the Hong Kong Human Rights? I think Rubio. Was it Cruz too, or just Rubio? He was he was involved. I'm pretty sure because I think they just sanctioned those two. They just sanctioned um, all of the so that like yeah they sanctioned those two and then they also sanctioned Holly, Cotton, and one other person that I forget right now. But they sanctioned five people. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty interesting because those you know uh, at least one of those guys is sort of hoisted up as being the the one of the you know most favorable right populist guys howley yeah yeah and he's he seems to be totally parroting these think tank talking points on china so it's really interesting how there is this crossover between this sort of right populist grift and certain think tanks you know like hudson Mm -hmm. i I, i'm not gonna say more about that but i think you know where i'm going with that that hudson institute seems to be (laughs) they have their tentacles in some of these right populist things Committee yeah. on Present Danger does also. I mean, War Room Pandemic, uh, that you know Bannon show is just, uh, you know, they're bringing on a lot of these right populist people all the time. So, it's it's very yeah. it's very strange. But Hong Kong government recently responded, you know, before the arrest of Jimmy Lai, who was the 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 owner of Apple Media, um, which is you know supposedly one of the most important outlets there that were the head of the outlet meets with John Bolton. What was this national security law that was passed in Hong Kong. And it was sort of a result of the U.S. meddling there. So, like, explain yeah. explain how that happened and what that was. 
So the national security law was actually passed by uh, Beijing's legislator. When the British, when they handed over Hong Kong to China, part of the agreement um, was that Hong Kong was supposed to pass some sort of national security law to prevent subversion and, you know, like independence uh, movements and stuff like that. But Hong Kong, they never did it. They tried to in 2003 and there was like a big, a lot of people came out and protested against it. But it was under the agreement of the handover was that Hong Kong was supposed to pass a national security law. And that didn't happen. And then this, this year of protests happened in Hong Kong. So Beijing made their own and they passed it. And it's if you read it, it's mostly about foreign, you know, interference. So when you see Jimmy Lai getting arrested, it's not really like a mystery. It's it's like because, like I said, he made these trips to D.C. And it's another point that sounds like a cliche. But like, could you imagine for one second if Black Lives Matter protesters went to Beijing and pleaded for intervention? That would I mean, be absurd. What, yeah, like what would happen? Or if like I'm trying um, to think of a media outlet like a if like Breitbart went to like China or something or like Russia. Yeah. Like a Breitbart went to Russia right now. I don't know. I mean I can't even think of an yeah, equivalent, yeah. but uh it's it's odd, to mm-hmm. say the least, that it's it's just all these things are omitted. I mean I, I looked him up immediately when the story broke about him because I, I thought, you know, this guy probably has been balls deep with these neocons that I just want to check. And it's just as soon as they started looking, I was like, him with John Bolton. Yeah. He pictured him with John Bolton <laughs> picture of him with the FDD backdrop behind him, which I need to mention again is partially funded by the Israeli government. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it's just crazy shit when you think about how house of cards, and just like, this is what DC is like. Like, I mean, this stuff is just, it's, it's bizarre, but you, so when this when they pass this national security law as a response to all this stuff you're saying the US also responded by mm-hmm. sort of like leaning into this sort of trade war thing i wouldn't have expected the trump administration to take this route but explain what they did next they did something a little bit surprising to hong kong well they canceled their preferential trade status so hong kong was not subject to China's like export controls and sanctions and stuff. And Hong Kong was a big like trade hub between the U between the Western world and, you know, Asia. And, uh, but, and that was part of the Hong Kong human rights and democracy act. So under this new national security law, Pompeo said that the city's not sufficiently autonomous. So they cancel all these, uh, trade, you know, agreements with them. And they actually also like sanctioned Carrie Lam, which she's like the head politician in Hong Kong. Uh, and so they're basically just making Hong Kong more like China because all the businessmen in, in Hong Kong, you know, they're losing this special trade status. So it's just going to bring them closer to Beijing, I think. And do you think that might have been part of the intention? This is almost like an accelerationist play. I, It just it seems odd because. For, it would seem like if you were like, let's say if you were back in the Obama era and they had already gotten this deep into some kind of escalation with China, it seems like their approach would be to try to create more of a wedge within Hong Kong to separate itself more from China. That would be their play. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm do, – do, would you agree with that? Like a, kind of almost like a Ukraine situation? Yeah. 
Yeah, I would I would say so. And I mean, that's kind of what I assume that the Trump administration was going for. But then these moves just kind of brought them closer to China. It's like you said, like Ukraine, like what if during the coup or whatever, the U.S. made some move where they couldn't make a trade deal with the EU and instead brought them closer to Russia? It's like. And maybe. Yeah. And and maybe that is what people do. You know, maybe there's always there's because it almost just seems like an accelerationist way to to just create the scenario you want. Yeah. But Taiwan, I mean, that's that's a whole other sort of like Hong Kong, I thought was going to be used as a geopolitical chess piece to light this situation up. But it now seems like Taiwan is actually the chosen vessel for this. And there's been yeah. some crazy maneuvers lately, too, like they like Lockheed Martin just did this massive defense system that they sold to Taiwan and China mm-hmm. has sanctioned Lockheed Martin in response. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on with Taiwan and how that's, you know, escalated as well in the last few months? Taiwan's always been a really sensitive issue between the U.S. and China. Um, And we've sold them, the U.S. has sold them weapons since, you know, since the diplomatic relations changed and we recognized China as China and didn't, and we don't like officially recognize Taiwan. Uh, but we've been selling them weapons the whole time and sailing warships in the, through the Taiwan Strait. And basically, um, without saying it, uh, the U.S. will protect Taiwan from a Chinese invasion. Now, will the U.S. – are we actually willing to go to war over Taiwan? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. But um, there's been some moves lately and kind of like the attitude in Congress from like these Marco Rubio types is that – Yes, we will go to war over Taiwan. But um, something interesting happened recently. I'll go back. One of the first moves the Trump administration made after being elected, which I remember, it's pretty interesting. In December 2016, during the transition, uh, Trump accepted a phone call from Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, which was a first since the diplomatic relations changed. That kind of set the tone for the administration and i remember I mean, that yeah yeah and knowing and now the way i look at look i look at it differently now because i didn't realize what did obama do that no okay so sorry to interrupt you but go ahead but yeah it was president trump took the call it was like a congratulatory phone call and trump took it first president-elect or president to do it since 79 uh, i recorded as far as we know just sorry to interrupt you once more but which is really notable because it's like here we are in this now debate framework where it's like oh my god the who the world health organization wouldn't answer a question about taiwan look how controlled by china there it's like dude this is the first like trump was the first president in history to talk to the taiwanese president if i'm hearing you correctly which is yeah yeah 2017 officially officially because yeah i like what i've read on it was like there might have been phone calls, but this was the first like publicly acknowledged one. And so, yeah, and that whole who thing like that is U.S. policy. That was the U.S. agreed to that. OK, you're out of the U.N., Taiwan. See you later. But here here's some missiles. <laughs> it's just a stu- like another short sighted policy that's going to bite us in the ass. So there was a weird thing where, it, you know, it, it the relationship kind of behind the scenes Trump was Trump's administration was really trying to forge this sort of diplomatic physical diplomatic channel where there would be emissaries being sent by the US 
yeah. to Taiwan. So go into some of that and and how that's, you know, when that started. So in, in 2018, uh, Trump signed into law the Taiwan Travel Act, which paved the way for uh, visits from like high level U.S. officials. Throughout the years, there's been visits by like pretty low level officials. But um, just this past weekend, the health secretary, Alex Azar, he landed in Taiwan. And that's the highest level official that's visited Taiwan since 1979. So it's a big deal. He went there to discuss the coronavirus and, you know, it was under the guise of like the the WHO stuff. And, you know, he was saying, oh, Taiwan's been open and democratic and they've shown how to, you know, combat the coronavirus. So it's just another example of how the pandemic has been like a, a useful like tool to increase tensions with China and, you know, mess with them a little more. And it's funny, t- Taiwan, like if you look at the timeline of the people that say China like covered up the pandemic. They say Taiwan like notified the World Health Organization that it was that there was like human to human transmission. But then they made the email like public and all the emails said was that they heard seven people in Wuhan had pneumonia like symptoms and were being treated like separate were like isolated from each other. That was all. And that was exactly what China told the World Health Organization. And that's one of the things that like like the Steve Bannon types like just repeat over and over again. But that that they that Taiwan warned of the human to human transmission in December 31st. But it's just not true. They just said what was going on, really. Well, this is an extremely important point, even though it maybe seem like uh, we're getting into the weeds. It's an extremely important point you're making because people need to pay attention to what you're saying. I'm not specifically going after people like Greenwald, you know, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Stoller. But in a way, I kind of am because I feel like they've taken this these propaganda points without fully breaking them down in the way that you've just described is that the, they really don't shape out in the, in the ways that Steve Bannon and other people like him and how they're trying to frame them. They don't hold up to scrutiny. And I think yeah. once you fully understand how Taiwan here is being used almost like a little geopolitical chess piece by the United States, it makes sense why... We've been meant to, you know, since the pandemic, it's like all of a sudden now Taiwan is supposed to be like this heroic country. You know, this is the narrative essentially, is there this heroic country that tried to warn the world first and the WHO and China and even the US, you know, didn't really pay enough attention to them. And they're sort of the heroes in this situation. And I just find that it's just awfully silly to think that that's happening in the middle of all this, because clearly there's, you know, there's some, let's just say there's some, uh, that's some kind of work. That's some kind of op. Uh, it's just too convenient. Yeah. China's adversary, this little, you know, um, territory is now acting. Anyways, I'm now I'm, I'm just ranting too much, but <laughs> what was the next thing, uh, that was put into law by Trump, um, after this travel act, the Taipei act? Yeah. The Taipei act that was, uh, pushed through Congress in 2019 and I guess it was just kind of sitting on Trump's desk for a while, but he signed it in March of this year. That's when things started getting hot. It's it's kind of a symbolic act. It just means it, it just says that the U.S. is going to work towards making the rest of the world have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And, you know, something that's interesting about all this legislation, there's been a lot, a lot of anti-China legislation being passed uh, over Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Taiwan. 
a lot of stuff. It goes through unanimously. Thomas Massey, the what is he from Kentucky? You know, he's like actually one of the small government Republican types. He votes against all of them. But everybody else votes for these. You know, you it, like what else goes through so unanimously? Yeah, I guess the only other thing I can think of is the uh, you know before Trump got in is the all the anti Russia legislation. Yeah, that was yeah. just it's has a similar bipartisan crossover effect. That's what's so dangerous about this is I, I there just doesn't seem to be a position, even a strong anti war position on this China stuff because it is such a bipartisan thing. I mean, you know, not just in D.C., but it just seems like. Even I, I even see a lot of leftists having to go out of their way and be like, what should the U.S.'s response be to China's human rights abuses? It's like, well, why are you framing it that way? That's such a weird <laughs> yeah, way to yeah. ask me a question. It's like, it's basically like saying, well, don't you think Saddam Hussein is a bad guy? It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to have that discussion with you. We need to stop war with Iraq. Like, that's it's yeah. like, I'm not going to sit here and waste any energy defending Saddam Hussein. You know, as a, as a man, as a moral, some kind of moral character that I should, you know, say as a good person. What the fuck? When people are talking about the Uyghurs, I'm just like, how about we stop killing Muslims in the Middle East? How about we stop genociding uh, Yemen? And I mean, I don't like to use that word because it's kind of the interventionist playbook that they call everything a genocide. But if you look at what's happening in Yemen, the potential attacks on civilian infrastructure— and just in the past couple months, dozens of children have been killed in Saudi airstrikes that are entirely enabled by the U.S. And nobody cares. Nobody horrific. cares. Yeah. Yeah. During a pandemic. And do you think that Yemen isn't also affected by this? I mean, there's coronavirus, yeah. you know, there as well. People can't even wash their hands there because there's no clean water. It's a horrific situation. And same thing with Gaza. It's like you want to talk about a million Muslims being in a prison look at fucking gaza there's two million people i i can't when i look at the numbers like the statistics of the unemployment it's something like gaza's youth like 20 early 20s are like over 50 percent of them are unemployed i think it's something like 70 percent. it's crazy they can't go anywhere they have no jobs i can't imagine what that's like and we completely enable that but yeah we care about the the uyghur muslims and yeah i mean look i'm willing to have a, a an in-depth nuanced discussion about it as soon as i feel like i know what the fuck is actually happening there that's the part of the problem it's like gaza has been studied and documented for decades we know how bad the situation is there there's journalists in palestine who tell us every day how terrible it is it's verified what i mean is it's easier to understand that situation this is still a developing situation and i feel like we are being largely propagandized by it yeah i mean just going back to Taiwan, the Taiwanese government, not only are they buying, you know, these these missile defense systems from Lockheed Martin and these crazy hostile moves, obviously to like, you know, I guess what scare China in some weird way. All these other think tanks in Washington, DC, besides the Hudson Institute, um, ones that you and I are very familiar with, are also getting money from the Taiwanese government. Yeah. Eli Clifton reported this a couple of weeks ago. Uh Brookings the Center for American Progress are both getting tons of money from the Taiwanese government. And it's just like, it's just such a gross feedback loop of nonsense. I mean, we can't trust any any of this stuff. So I'm only going to trust people talking about the Uyghurs that have actually gone there, 
maybe even people who've lived in China or who know people there. It's just look at any of these people reporting on the Uyghur situation in mainstream outlets and look at and see what their associations are. And I guarantee you most of them are associated with think tanks or these national security people. And that's a shame yeah. because if there really is an issue there and these people are suffering, then like they deserve actual honest people you know, bringing their story to light, not these fucking spooks and hawks and people who just want to make war out of this shit. So again, you know, there are kernels of truth to all this stuff, but it's being manipulated and utilized by some of the grossest actors in, mm -hmm. in this military industrial complex system. Um, sorry, I just went off on a, on a total rant. No, yeah, I mean, I agree, man. Do you have anything more to say about Taiwan and, and where that situation is right now? I, I mean, the only rhetoric I've seen lately about Taiwan, I guess, that I should mention is that I've seen people like Josh Howley and these other people who were just sanctioned by the Chinese government for saying that China is going to invade Taiwan, like in the next yeah. four years. They're acting like yeah. it's an imminent thing. And it just seems like that's the same kind of FDD talking point where they tried to get those same group of people to think that Iran was going to bomb Israel like within the next mm -hmm. four years. It's the same crap. It's like, why would China do this? They've never, you know, if anything, China will just do these little incremental moves like they're doing in the South China Sea. They're, why would they invade Taiwan? It just does not, yeah. it's just not anything like they've, that they've done before. So just look at historical precedent. I mean, we're the country that does that. So <laughs> yeah, what true. a bunch of crap. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, it, it, it's all just our U.S. policy, like, short-sighted moves. Like, why did we back Shanghai check? The U.S., for 30 years, the U.S. recognized Taiwan as China. I mean, and then just, you know, flip that decision. And it's just such a stupid policy. I mean, the whole thing, Taiwan issue, is a is because of U.S. policy. Like that's why there's this island that says they're the uh, Republic of China, and that's why there's this giant country that says they're part of their country is because of the United States involvement in the region and backing Chiang Kai-shek against Mao and letting him flee to that. You know, like it's just all chickens coming home to roost. Anyway, if, if even if China does invade Taiwan, it's not. Well, it kind of reminds know. me of the hay everybody tried to make about the Crimea thing, because how big of a deal was that actually? Even if you don't think Putin you know, or Russia did have any rights to take over in that region of the world, and you don't think that the referendum is legitimate, you yeah. know, just on a rational level, you would still have to be convinced that that was some kind of evidence that Russia was about to run some kind of imperial uh, rekindling of the Soviet bloc. You know, in Eastern Europe, that's what all the neocons and the establishment <laughs> people were trying to tell us was about to happen. Yeah. So that's the. It just reminds me of the same rhetoric here. It's like these little movements China has made, and yeah, some of them maybe are kind of aggressive militarily, like in these little small ways. But like to say that this, you know, to like then be like, no, 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 China's actually like really close to invading Taiwan now. They're about to take over, you know, the whole South China Sea. They're about to take over like all of Asia. Matt Stoller is going around pretty much saying this, you know, yeah, they're now taking over America is now even and his narrative. And it's like, like, this is just clearly manufactured. So, yeah. And he, he, he plays it like, oh, it's the ruling elite betraying like the working class and yeah, working the, with China. Yeah. And it's a very similar argument to Steve Bannon. Some of Bannon's rhetoric too, about Wall Street 
they sound similar. But, you know, this is another interesting thing that the right populist people have been able to uh, sort of hijack is this debate on Silicon Valley and controlling speech and such and, and, and you know, stifling conservatives on, on social media. But now they've used this, uh, you know, that framing to sort of act like TikTok and WeChat are bad because it's some kind of backdoor spying for China. And we should be more concerned about that than anything Silicon Valley is doing here or anything the CIA is doing or anything the NSA is doing in terms of collecting all, all of our data. So, you know, they've been talking about doing this for a while to actually banning, outright banning TikTok. But, like, how did it get to this level? Like, take us back, you know, to a few months ago. Like, when did this start becoming an issue? And it, I even remember Zoom being a big deal too. Yeah. Like I, it was, especially after the pandemic, it was like, don't use zoom because it's all like China, a Chinese spying network. Um, yeah. And stuff I like that. Nancy Pelosi said something about that. Like, Oh, we can't do Congress over zoom because it's a Chinese, the Chinese will spy on us. And then somebody, I think it was on Twitter. It was like, you know, the Chinese could just go on C-SPAN, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, um, but TikTok. I mean, this has been, um, We've heard about this for a while, this whole thing that um, it's a Chinese-owned company. Uh, that means that they have an obligation to give the Chinese government the people's data that use it. It's been a bipartisan you know, effort. You know, Chuck Schumer and Tom Cotton, they called for an investigation into TikTok. And then I think just in recent months, it's just part of this whole, you know, part of Trump's trade war, part of the pandemic stuff, and then part of just the overall, uh, in, you know, Cold War, new Cold War attitude. And then there's also the tech companies and the monopolies. You know, they're talking about. Let's just talk about the executive order that Trump signed the other day. It didn't outright ban TikTok and WeChat. It like effectively banned it. It prohibited people from doing business with ByteDance, which is the company, the Chinese company that owns uh, TikTok, and then the the company that owns WeChat, the Chinese company. So that means it probably. So it banned people from doing business with those companies, which means it's probably not going to be in the app stores anymore. When this goes into effect, which is in about a month. But then they also gave them uh, in the bills basically saying they have like 45 days to sell. 45 days. Yeah. To an American yeah. company, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and Microsoft is in talks to buy that. They've talked with Trump about it. Another thing that's interesting is that Facebook, they... Uh, well, they own Instagram. It's an Instagram app. It's called Reels. It's I haven't I haven't seen it yet. I've been meaning to like download it and see what it looks like. But apparently, it's just like TikTok, and it just was launched. And Mark Zuckerberg was recently testifying in front of Congress, saying how like w there's this U.S. tech companies have American values, and now there's like Chinese tech companies that have different values, and we can't allow that. He releases this new TikTok app as the government's trying to ban TikTok. Apparently it launched in because India just banned TikTok after their little border skirmish with China. And like five days later, this Reels app started there. But also the whole thing that they say the Chinese government um, has access to the people's data that, that uses it is just it's just funny because, as we know, like the NSA and the FBI have backdoors to all of our apps, Facebook and I don't know if Instagram was around at the time that the Snowden leaks came out, but I'm sure Instagram and Microsoft stuff and everything. I mean, they have access to our data. I mean, the censorship has been really bad lately. 
Um, after Soleimani was killed, if you made a post like, oh, Qasem Soleimani, you know, defeated ISIS in, in Iraq, that would be censored. Yeah. Stuff like that. No, it's gotten particularly bad. I mean, I don't know if you just saw this recent uh, announcement by YouTube. They just said that they're updating their policy that um, during elections, well, I don't even know if they say during elections, but they said any information that was obtained from a hack that comes out in the form of a YouTube video, whether it's commentary, whatever, if you put that information in a YouTube video now that comes from a supposed or alleged hack that has to do with a presidential campaign or candidate, your video will be removed, which is absurd because, you know, they've all been saying all of these are hacks when they're not yeah. proven to be. I mean, like all the WikiLeaks stuff or that even the DDoS leaks and Blue Leaks stuff, they're saying they're hacks, but there's no proof that those are hacks either. Yeah. Wow. No, I didn't hear about that. That just happened? Just announced today. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I was saying a couple months ago that there's no way that they're going to allow anything like the WikiLeaks dumps of 2016 to happen again on the level that they yeah. happen. They're going to shut that shit. They're going to find a way, you know, these companies, whatever, they're going to, they're going to shut it down somehow. And if they have to scorched earth, the entire internet and just ruin it for everybody, they'll do it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's bad. Uh, I, that's why, I mean, what's good for antiwar.com is that it's been around so long. They started in 95 so like our newsletter, mo like most, we're kind of separate. I mean, we have a social media presence, but we're kind of separate from social media. Yeah, you didn't use like, social media to uh, to to grow your guys' reputation. You were yeah predate it, and that's what that's actually the model that everybody needs to consider going back to. I think is, is the email. Yeah, the email list, even the physical mailing lists. Yeah, I think web hosts for the most part ISPs. They won't actually block websites yet because that sort of does infringe, I think, on actual constitutional rights. That that might those might become legal cases, you know, if they start trying to do that. I think yeah. that that's the next stage of this is actual outright ISP filtered, government filtered internet. But for now, uh, I think that we need to stop relying on social media, video hosting platforms. Only use them as like a supplement to some infrastructure that you already have, because I think everybody who does alt media stuff is in danger from this. It doesn't even matter at this point if you're, you know, just only doing conspiracy stuff or criticizing Israel. It just seems like anything could be anything. Well, the global research is definitely one that's on the chopping block now because after some of those Chinese oh, diplomats yeah, tweeted out the right. thing saying it, the coronavirus came from Fort Detrick. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. It was that. a global yeah. research article. It was. And uh, Cernovich and all those people freaked out. They, I remember even seeing, like, that was one of the first times in a while I saw, like, Pasobic and those guys saying they should shut down global research. And I'm like, wait a second. Oh, those? Wow. Like, global research has been around, like, five times longer than any of your guys' shit, you know? Yeah. I don't know, Dave, did we not, did we forget anything? Um, oh, one, I, I, one thing I would want to say is about WeChat. Um, oh yeah, yeah. The WeChat thing we didn't really go into that. Why is WeChat, you know, so important here? Chinese people use WeChat like for everything. It's a messaging service. It's kind of like their social media too, and they pay for stuff on there. And like my uh, just my personal like experience with it, I my brother's wife is Chinese and she can't type in English, so we use the app. Her and my mom like talk on it all, all day, um, and she talks to all her family in China. 
and this is any you know Chinese person I know that has family in China. They they talk to them on WeChat. It's like really important for Chinese Americans, and it's gonna like cut off this quick communication. Like I think it's really dangerous for this new Cold War escalation if we're gonna cut these people like kind of make China more separate, uh, have less access to people in the U.S. I think just cutting down communication lines is really dangerous, and it's a big deal. And then in China, they're not going to stop using it. So if they can't download it on their iPhone, they're not going to get an iPhone. Yeah, it's odd. I mean, in Australia, I mean, I'm just thinking of places where there's a lot of Chinese immigrants, like Australia, and like like nothing could fill the gap. Like TikTok is banned, somebody can fill that gap, but no, nobody's going to be able to fill this WeChat gap. Yeah, and do you think if an American company purchased WeChat that China would they would probably just like shut it down too from their end? Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. They, they, so it just it just seems designed to just escalate the situation and to make things worse. I don't I don't buy any of the rhetoric on its face for a second. Yeah. Yeah, man. and I'm not also I also I'm not defending these companies that just collect people's data either. I mean like yeah. all these companies are probably bad, but like there's a reason why we're selectively acting like these are the two worst companies right now. I mean, look at these companies that are actually doing the most damage. I mean, Google and YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, like, shape the reality tunnel of, like, you know, I don't know how what percentage of the world's population, but it's a shitload at this point. It's a lot yeah. of people worldwide that get their reality tunnel shaped by these handful of companies that are in California for the most part. To be fair, you know, in China, you can't go on Facebook or I know Facebook and like Twitter. It worked because I, I was actually there in January, which is kind of funny, right before this whole pandemic thing started. And I remember like sometimes those websites work, but most of the time they didn't. Like they have what they call the Great Firewall. But I don't think I think shutting down WeChat is just is just a shame because that's how they every Chinese people talk to each other across the world. Sure, and also at this point, if you really want to get around that stuff, and you're savvy enough in China, they all have VPNs. Yeah, everybody it's like everybody. It's very, very easy. The government is not ahead in terms of. I mean, yeah, like sure, there's something to be said about encryption. Tor, those things are not 100 percent reliable, but yeah, there are still ways to get ahead of all this stuff. Just don't listen to what people say when they say that. It's impossible to access these things in those countries. It's not. I guess I just want to leave you with one last question, Dave. Like, I know that you're tracking the characters involved in this less than the actual events, but who are some of like the people that you think people should be most focused on right now who are really pushing a lot of this anti-China and sort of think tank propaganda about China? You covered it with that think tank that committee on the present danger and sure. steve bannon i mean like these crazy ultra ultra hawks i think steve bannon as crazy as he is he has a lot of influence still pompeo's recent speeches saying like the democracies of the world have to team up against china or they're gonna like destroy us or something i mean it's coming like straight out of that think tank and steve bannon's daily show where he's just it's like he's been activated by this pandemic because i didn't realize I knew he was like how he was on the trade and stuff. But since this pandemic started, he's been like just totally out of control. Um, but besides that, like you said, I really I follow, you know, the developments around the world so closely. It's tough for me to kind of follow people. Um, I kind of wrote a lot about Steve Bannon recently. 
because it was so like kind of fascinating to me. It's tough to say. I mean, in Congress, obviously, you got Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton and your Hawks there. And Ted Yoho is somebody to watch. I think I didn't know who he was until I was reading about his Taiwan stuff. I think he was just in the news because he's called AOC a bitch or something. Yeah, he's like an ultra China hawk. Yeah, the Bannon thing is really interesting and unexpected to me because I knew he was, I knew he had weird foreign policy views on China, but I did not know the full extent of it until fairly recently. And man, he's really fixated on it. I mean, he's meeting with all these, he claims he's meeting with all these Chinese dissidents all the time and talking <laughs> yeah. to him through the Great Firewall. You know, he, he's really proud of himself about this little network of, Chinese, you know, Chinese dissidents he's built up, including an exiled Chinese billionaire, quote unquote dissident, who somehow funds Steve Bannon like over a million dollars a year to do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. It's kind of amusing Whoa. too, because J. Michael Waller, a guy from the Committee on Present Danger with Steve Bannon, sometimes will fire off these tweets where he's like accusing Miles Guo, this Chinese billionaire, of being actually a secret like double agent and people shouldn't trust him. And it's like, dude, he's funding like your boss at this think tank. Yeah. It's just weird. I, I mean, I don't know if everything, everybody's just getting, you know, antsy and, and cannibalizing each other during the pandemic. But it was just funny to see one of the neocons from that think tank attacking a guy that pays for Steve Bannon. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. That's Steve Bannon's buddy, that Guo guy. I mean, like just, it's just such bizarre stuff that he does with them. Like I wrote about they like declared a new state of China in on a boat in front of the Statue of Liberty. Like I saw I saw these planes with banners and I said something China. I'm like, what the hell is that? And it was Steve Bannon. Like it's just these bizarre like stunts. That oh, you saw it actually cartoonish. from Brooklyn. I actually saw it. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. It's um, it's weird. I mean, I saw that that got some coverage in the media. Not enough, though. I think they. I think people just assume Bannon's totally on the outs now. But he's yeah, clearly yeah. not. No, he's not. Yeah. And yeah, Navarro and yeah, there's there's a lot of influence there. I'm gonna incorporate this interview into a longer podcast, right? Let's talk about some other things too. So, just some discussion about Q and and some other stuff like that. That's something I gotta get. I gotta listen to your QAnon stuff. My wife listened to it. Oh yeah, it was really good. But yeah, I gotta check it out because that's something I haven't really been following myself. It was great talking to you, and let's uh, keep in touch. All right, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. That was that was fun. It's uh, great to be on your show, man. So at the end of that long-winded explanation of all these escalations, this is not trivial. This is not to be taken lightly. If you remember back to the previous episode and all the other escalations where people were actually arrested from Chinese consulates and they actually ordered the closure of two Chinese consulates, or I'm sorry, one Chinese consulate, um, these are major escalations. We didn't reach this point with Russia until 2016, like right before Trump got in office. So, yeah, I'm really concerned where this is going to go. I'm really concerned what crazy things that the Trump administration and these anti-China hawks will try to pull between now and the election. I'm very concerned about it. And I implore you, if you're a listener to this podcast, to not get stuck in the framework of 
arguing about if China's human rights abuses are real or not, or if they're bad or not, that's when you lose. The, the, the key is to actually change the framing of the argument. The key to having these debates is to reframe the argument. A smarter, more effective strategy is to continually bring the conversation back to America. Because ultimately, we don't want to talk about our own problems here. A lot of this foreign policy rhetoric, fear-mongering about another country, it's also designed to uphold the myth that America is good, that America is fine, that America is moral, that America takes care of its own people, that America doesn't harm its own people, that America doesn't commit human rights abuses, that America treats our prisoners fairly. We don't have quote-unquote concentration camps. That's what a lot of that's designed to do. So remember that and remember that the more you talk about that, the more you're actually shifting the conversation away from what's most important right now if you're a United States citizen. The reason we're being led in that direction is for propaganda purposes. So at its heart, that's the only reason why people are being spurred into having those conversations in the first place. So once you understand that, you can also sort of understand why it's not wise to let that framework lead you in discussions because that framework exists in general as a propaganda tool. And I think you'll have an easier time navigating this situation and pushing back against this China propaganda if you don't get stuck in that framework. So I know I've taken up almost an hour of this podcast already about China, but I thought it was really important to, to get that out of the way because, you know, even though I feel like I've been talking about this subject a lot, Abby and I were talking about it a lot before she went on break. I don't see very many people even talking about this at all, pretty much on any left podcast. I mean, with the exception of the Black Agenda Report, Danny Haifong, Margaret Kimberly were talking about it. Like I said, Eugene Perrier on his new news program is talking about it. But man, it's, a, it's kind of an empty desert out there. And that's part of what's so scary. You know, during the Russiagate escalations, there were plenty of people constantly pushing back. There were a lot of libertarians, for example, like all of them were pushing back against the anti-Russian propaganda, even before Crimea. And there's just almost nobody now. And like I said, Dave DeCamp is doing great work. But I, man, I just wish there was more people out there. It's kind of scary. But what's also kind of scary is these you know, escalations that have been happening on the streets uh, against protesters. And of course, you know, the right is trying to make it seem like the protesters are the violent ones and they're the ones, you know, to be scared of and everything's going to become a lawless chaos zone and that's why we need to send the National Guard in. I mean, it's obvious propaganda. Anyone who's been to these kinds of protests before knows that. There have now been like multiple shooting incidents that sort of started to escalate and happen very frequently over the last series of BLM protests. Um, the most awful of among them was a shooting in Austin that was a really tragic incident. A guy who brought an AK-47 to a protest, um, a car basically turned a corner and charged into protesters. There is no denying that a car deliberately drove at a pretty high speed into protesters. That's very clear from the video. 
it's not even like he didn't see the protesters. It's very, very obvious that he was trying to provoke some kind of response. And this guy who had an AK-47, who was part of the BLM protests, happened to be in the line of this car driving towards him. And the full details are not completely known, but this driver with a handgun murdered this protester. Somehow the police released him. So I don't know if he was able to effectively tell the police it was out of self-defense, but just the fact that he's turning at such a high rate of speed into protesters seems to tell me that he was interested in provoking some kind of incident or actually hurting somebody physically with his car. So I think it's a little bit absurd that anybody, you know, who's not a right-wing dog shit peddler would try to put all this ambiguity in this situation and act like, well, this guy was just trying to protect his life. He had to defend himself. You know, when he saw the guy with an AK-47, it's like, no, whoever this driver was, was obviously aggressively trying to drive into some protesters. It's clear from the fucking video. Just watch it. Another interesting thing happened, Amon Bundy, um, the guy who did the standoff with police, that InfoWars hero, has now come out in support of BLM and defunding the police. And it's actually really funny if you watch his uh, Periscope video where he's talking about why he's taking this stance, all the comments are just losing their mind in real time in their replies. It's absolutely hilarious. If you want to find that video, it's, it's on my Twitter feed. I retweeted it like last month. But if you type Amon Bundy BLM on Twitter, you'll probably find it. Just a word, to the, uh, a word of advice to people who want to find like video clips. The YouTube search engine and the Google search engine is absolutely ruined now for finding video clips. It's actually easier to find video clips on Twitter, believe it or not. Even the Google video search is terrible. Uh, all the Basically what they've done is they've made it so that any like conspiracy or a- a- adjacent subject you're searching for is impossible to find now. It's like buried on the third or fourth page and... Even then, it's like all this stuff is missing. I mean, the the search engine is trash compared to how it used to be when I was making my film a very heavy agenda. I can't even find most of those clips that I used to be able to find on YouTube anymore. And it's not because they've been removed. It's because they're like deranked into oblivion. It's because their search tags are like completely removed. You cannot find them by even like searching for their title. Like if you know the exact title of the video... Like, try searching for some of Abby's stuff. It's deranked. My stuff is deranked. If you type in American Anthrax, the first page is filled with things that have nothing to do with, that doesn't have the title American Anthrax. And for some reason, my video is like on the second or third page, even though it's the only video on YouTube called American Anthrax. So the deranking, the deplatforming, it's already coming for everybody that does anything even remotely conspiracy theory related. It's, it's over. There have been other shootings as well at protests recently. There's a video of a guy unholstering his handgun and shooting it in the direction of a protester and telling him to back the fuck up. There was a video that came out last night of a guy pretending to be a protester throwing actual pipe bombs at protesters. Now, you watch the video, it doesn't look like too big of an explosion, you know, and some right winger will be like, ah, the BLM protesters are shooting like bottle rockets at police. What's the difference? Well, the difference is 
a pipe bomb is meant to throw shrapnel throughout your entire body and kill you. It's actually absurd that a video came out last night of a protester basically screaming and telling everybody to run out of the way because they saw someone throw a pipe bomb on the ground where they were. And somebody actually followed this psychopath, uh, photographed his face, and the guy first denied it and said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And then he sort of changed his tune and said, I'm not someone you want to be fucking with. And, uh, well, actually, I think you are someone we want to be fucking with because you're throwing pipe bombs at people, dude. So the psychopath was actually identified and doxxed by people in Portland. And there's some stories now written about him. He's actually an ex-Navy SEAL. And he has been named a person of interest, apparently, by the Portland police, which is weird that, that's, that he wouldn't be arrested for this. But the story is a little strange. The bombs that he actually made and threw in the direction of protesters were inside of a plastic PVC pipe. Now, making a regular pipe bomb, you would usually use a metal pipe and seal it at both ends so that it explodes metal shrapnel everywhere. So this almost seems like some kind of experiment. Like, I, I don't really quite understand what this guy's motive was. The pipe bombs themselves didn't injure anybody as far as I know. But it just seems like a very ominous, threatening, crazy thing to do to make things that appear to be metal pipe bombs and be throwing them at protesters. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty disturbing. Um, this guy's name is actually Louis Garrick Fernbaugh. He's a former Navy SEAL. And the guy who, who followed him in that video is actually named Scott Keeler. Um, pretty brave dude for following a psychopathic guy who just threw pipe bombs at people. Um, so hats off to him. I mean, you help probably dox this absolute piece of shit. And it's funny, too, because uh, pipe bombs were something that the right tried to associate with the left. Remember Brandon Darby for, for Breitbart News, that FBI informant piece of shit who entrapped, who helped the FBI entrap two left protesters into buying supplies to make pipe bombs, and that was enough to get them arrested? You know, the right is still trying to exacerbate some kind of violent mindset. You know, I told you on the last episode that Scott Adams and Tim Pool were going full Civil War gaslighting on themselves, like self-gaslighting themselves into Civil War, which is just odd, very odd. And what's sort of interesting to me is there's this, you know, there's this whole thing going on in the QAnon world. I guess I'll talk, fine, I'll talk about QAnon now. Fine. There's this whole, you know, theme going on in the QAnon world right now where if you're left wing and you've made any jokes, you've made anything, any piece of art, any sketch comedy like Tim Heidecker's Child Clown Outlet sketch, which is fucking hilarious, one of the best Tim and Eric sketches ever. Fuck you if you think that's some kind of pedo code. You're an idiot. What's interesting to me is in this world of QAnon, there's this sort of witch hunt you know, or even Mike Cernovich has been part of it, where he's tried to witch hunt comedians like Sam Cedar and finding tweets of theirs where Sam Cedar made a joke about his daughter getting raped. Twitter used to be a little edgier place to make edgy jokes. A lot of comedians have surprisingly edgy jokes, some of them about pedophilia, some of them about children, things that I would, I'm surprised to see that they would have tweeted that. Regardless, 
These are jokes. So what the right has done is they've just taken anyone who they don't like and tried to find things about them to get them canceled, but not just canceled in general, but like slapped with the label of being like a secret pedo, which is absolutely insane to me that it's gone to that level, that they now started going after Tim Heidecker. Well, luckily, one of the main guys going after Tim Heidecker for that actually associates with literal pedophiles. And now that he knows that that's known about him, I think that he will generally back off because him and a lot of his colleagues actually associate with known pedophiles. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't want to get sued, um, but you will see very clearly what I'm talking about. There is actually a QAnon show right now hosted on the network of this person that I'm talking about that is an alleged pedophile. And she's constantly going out there calling Tom Hanks a pedo, calling all these people a pedo. And I'm like, dude, you literally worked for someone who is probably a pedophile. Like, what do you have to say to that? That's nuts that you think you have any moral authority to be calling random celebrities pedophiles with no evidence when you literally work for one where there's heaping piles of evidence that he is one. What do you have to say about that shit? One of the guys who platformed Roger Stone recently, who's a very viral right-leaning comedian named Ryan Long, as just a little experiment, I was like, hmm, I wonder if the QAnoners have gone after this comedian. Because here's about three or four tweets he made about raping kids. One of his tweets, apparently he thought the punchline was funny enough to just tweet, I raped a kid. Ryan Long, viral right-wing comedian, thought that it was that was a funny punchline. Now, you know, I, I thought it would be interesting to see as a social experiment what would happen if I tried to accuse him of being a pedophile based on one tweet, which is what psychopath, you know, phony Trump plants like Mike Cernovich have done to comedians like Sam Cedar. Obviously, none of the people believed it, you know, because he's a, he's a loved, revered right-wing comedian. But I think it's just interesting that nobody on the right in this world of Hollywood or anything has ever been accused by QAnoners of being a, a pedo. Even if they actually have tweets where they say, I raped a kid that are still online. That to me is fascinating because that proves on some level how much is just a partisan game. None of these people care about saving the children. If you cared about saving the children, you would actually become an activist against child abuse and look at the actual data that shows that most child abuse and sexual abuse happens within the home and within the family. So you don't care about saving the children. You care about getting some kind of endorphin rush feeling like you're in some kind of horror movie. The same kind of rush you'd get from watching like a slasher movie, imagining that there's these elite pedo sex trafficking rings where ch children's brains are getting sucked out so that the elites can get high on their adrenochrome. You are getting off in the same way that you would be watching a horror movie. It's fun for you. You don't care about saving the children because if you did, you would actually do something to become active against child abuse. And there are ways to do that. And just two clarifications I wanted to make. I have no reason to think Ryan Long, viral right-wing comedian who just interviewed Roger Stone, is an actual pedophile based on the tweet of, I raped a kid. I am not saying that. What I am saying 
is how QAnon is completely partisan and how if Ryan Long was an anti-Trump left-wing comedian and he had a tweet saying, I raped a kid, some QAnoner would eventually find that tweet and use it against him and try to like, kind of like disrupt his life actually, because that's a pretty strong accusation to make against somebody. So, I mean, the guy is probably not, probably, you know, not a sex criminal in any way. Seems like actually probably a nice guy. Don't know anything about him. I don't care for his politics. I mean, whatever. I've seen worse right-wing comedy. So I'll give him that, that it's, it's well done for being right-wing sort of conservative propaganda. Like it makes Steven Crowder's stuff look like, like worse than Carlos Mencia. I mean, if you don't already think Steven Crowder was like the lowest tier comedian ever, Ryan Long is actually like skillful. Um, and he's not like some Owen Benjamin total psychopath who's just ranting and raving, you know, nonsense all day long. Which, by the way, apparently Owen Benjamin is now a flat earther, which is pretty funny. He's so woke. You know, these people make fun of the woke on the left who are into identity politics and they're obsessed with identity politics, but they don't ever think of themselves as being these ultra woke people in like the terms of like the red pill conspiracy shit. It's like, it's almost like some kind of machismo game to be like, I'm so woke, man. I'm like, like, is the world fucking round, dude? Like, how do we know it's not flat, man? Like, I'm just keeping an open mind here. What, you're going to tell me, like, that you know for sure? It's like, it, it is really interesting, actually, how much it sort of resembles that arrogance. I mean, but it is stupider on a certain level, you know, than the most annoying woke leftism. It's just wokeism on the on a different side about something that's completely not real, <laughs> which is which is odd. Back to the whole QAnon thing for just a little bit longer. I mean... I've noticed now that there's been a pushback even from the QAnon anonymous podcast guys who, by the way, I mispronounced the name of their podcast multiple times on previous episodes of the show. I'm sorry, boy, for doing that. That was a total accident. The podcast is actually called QAnon Anonymous. It is the only podcast that is regularly covering QAnon. So... Like I said on previous episodes, if you want more QAnon stuff, that's the place to go. I've noticed even some of those hosts recently have been pushing back against this sort of, of course, predictable narrative, which is people who believe in QAnon are hicks, you know, with missing teeth, they're morons, they're uneducated, they're stupid. I haven't seen very many people saying that. I mean, that's been in general what people say about like right-wing conspiracy theories, but I guess since because I've already known people in my own life and in reality who got sucked into QAnon over the past few years, it's not something to me that's represented by like right-wing, ultra-conservative, you know, Larry the Cable Guy kind of boomers or whatever. It's something that's represented by like people I know in the Bay Area. <laughs> I mean, because that's how it's touched, that's how it's like actually gotten the closest to me, but so, I mean, I never thought in that framework at all about it. And I've never really thought that about any conspiracy theories in general, even today about any of the dumbest Trump ones. I mean, I see people that I thought were smart, like that I follow on social media spreading them. I mean, my sister sees people from 
her high school that she never realized were like super conservative people all of a sudden posting things that are QAnon narratives about all the sex trafficking rings that have been shut down and how Trump is saving the children and all the stuff. It's so you can't write them off and say, man, who's so dumb that they would believe this? You know, I've even seen people trying to reject the idea that it's a serious thing that we should take seriously in terms of like, this could be dangerous. And even some commenters, you know, on the Q anonymous stuff I see sometimes or, or Q anon anonymous stuff in our own podcast. Sometimes I'll see people saying, man, you guys are really overhyping this thing. It's just a bunch of dumb idiots. Like not that many people actually believe this. Like it's just a, like a really small minority of like really dumb people. And I just think that that's such a, it's absolutely not true. You would be actually shocked at how many smart people have gotten sucked into this because it's based on emotion. If you think that somehow that there's been this ongoing real elite pedo ring that's being, you know, gets closer and closer to being exposed every day. That's a really powerful emotional feeling. I mean, if you really believe like Hillary Clinton and her circle have committed these horrible crimes against children that they've eaten their brains to get high on adrenochrome. If you really believe that, that's like such a powerful emotional feeling that's going to really blind even with the most rational person. It's like once you cross that Rubicon and start believing that that's, that has to be real, it's kind of all rationality goes out the window. So, and I'm not even necessarily judging people who have gone in that direction. I mean, yeah, the people in the government, Hillary Clinton is responsible for killing countless children, especially in the Middle East. That's, there's no dispute about that. Her decisions, her hawkishness, her whatever, you know, she even voted for, I'm sure, tons of things that killed children when she was in the Senate. So it's really, I could see that the leap that people are taking in their minds to be like, yeah, why doesn't she also molest kids? Like, I'm willing to believe that. But I I, th- I think that's not the issue. It's not that if you have enough of an open mind to go there, it's more like the certainty. And there are some strange things in Pizzagate, I will admit. James Oliphantus's Instagram page is highly inappropriate. For a guy who runs a restaurant to have a picture on his Instagram page of a little girl with her hands taped to the table, it's shit's fucking weird as fuck. Why would you have that on your Instagram page? Why would you do that? That doesn't mean that that's the slam dunk proof that everything else about Pizzagate was real. It just means that that's a creepy dude in one way or another. You know, and there are, there are real kernels of truth in these narratives. Like James Alafontes' Instagram page has pictures that any person in their right mind would be like, that's an inappropriate picture to put on your Instagram page. Full stop. I would I, I would not put a picture like that up there. I think most people could agree like on on that. But when once you start doing things like John Podesta's voice, you know, this is John Podesta's voice chasing a child around Comet Pizza in the dark in some kind of sadistic child hunting ritual you're just so out of your depth you have no idea what you're talking about where is that video clip even from whoever was posting for QAnon actually fell for a viral hoax 
where the guy admitted to splicing World War Z footage over an MSNBC clip to make it look like MSNBC had accidentally actually shown footage from World War Z when they were supposed to be showing rioting in the United States. QAnon actually posted that and said, MSDNC, something, something, I don't even know what the actual post by Q was, but it was showing the photo as if it was an actual thing MSNBC aired. Whoever's running QAnon is just as slow and sloppy as any like armchair conspiracy person on the internet. Once you start seeing their mistakes, that's a straight up mistake. That's not like a false prediction or a promise that didn't get fulfilled. That's an actual mistake where QAnon just repeated a right-wing meme that was all originally a mistake that was meant to be a hoax that they picked up, you know, right-wing people picked it up and thought it was real. QAnon fell for the mistake. But just back to <clears throat> other things going on in QAnon world, I didn't even get a chance to talk about this yet, is that right after I appeared on the Office Hours podcast with Tim Heidecker to discuss QAnon, which was insane that I got the chance to do that. It was like one of the most fun moments of my life, getting to have a discussion with Tim Heidecker for like three hours. But like the day or two after I did that, Twitter announced that they were going to start banning and purging like over 10,000 Twitter accounts that were QAnon accounts. And as soon as they announced this, I was like, oh no, this is going to be really bad because seemingly my account is already shadow banned on Twitter. I thought that it wasn't actually real and that I thought I was just like whining like Dave Rubin. I thought I was making it up in my own head and just being paranoid. But then I looked it up on a website that detects to see what Twitter features are available to you that should be available to you. And one that is definitely blocked on my account. This is my account has been flagged. I wasn't notified of this, but right now I am aware of the fact that if you Twitter search for my tweets and you're not signed in and you're not already following me on Twitter, they don't come up. You only see replies to me. So I am currently sort of shadow ban on Twitter where you cannot find my tweets if you do a Twitter search for my name. You can only find people replying to my tweets. Now, if you type other people's names, you'll see that you can find their tweets perfectly fine. So for some reason, my tweets in a search are not available to people unless you're already aware of me and following me on Twitter. So that really sort of limits my ability to reach people because on Twitter, a lot of people will search hashtags for example, it just feels weird. It's the first time I've like gotten direct proof that one of these social media services is doing this without announcing it to me. Went on too much of a tangent about my own Twitter account. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Twitter is approaching this the same way that they would approach any other purging or deplatforming thing, much too broad of a sweep. This is not the, the appropriate way, I think, address the QAnon problem. They actually announced also that they're banning the hashtags. So I haven't done an extensive testing on it yet, and I don't even know if anybody has, but what happened is they actually banned 
some of the most prominent QAnon Twitter accounts, including that guy, Tommy G, who tried to smear Tim Heidecker. His account got banned. Now, at the same time it got banned, I'm starting to see a shift among all these people who normally would have never said this before, and they're thinking about if QAnon is actually somehow endorsed by Trump or is somehow part of the Trump campaign. And I have noticed a shift in people's thinking recently where I think that they are starting to come around to the idea that this is somehow officialized, whether it's part of Trump's campaign or not, it is officially, it is officially endorsed enough by enough different officials and they're winking and nodding at it enough now where people are finally willing to believe that this is not just a LARP. It's a scam. It's part of some kind of political op, but it's not a LARP completely. I mean, actually, it still could be mostly a LARP because the guy is saying that he's part of some kind of elite squad of patriots and blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is probably obviously a LARP. But maybe someone in it is part of military intelligence. Maybe there are kernels of truth in there. In fact, Anthony Schaefer, who, do you remember Abel Danger, who sort of became viral in the 9-11 truth community years ago, who was recently turned to a MAGA bootlicking chud? Anthony Schaefer, one of my pals in the podcasting scene who runs Black Tower Radio, Jake Fox, great guy, he actually got a little close to Anthony Schaefer enough to finally bring up to him, hey, my friend and I are discussing QAnon and we want to know what you think of it because you're military intelligence or your former military intelligence. So what do you think of this? And his response to Jake was shocking where Anthony Schaefer, former military intelligence guy actually said to us a year ago that he thought QAnon was doing more good than harm. And that he believed QAnon was mostly legit. Now, I need to stress to you how crazy this was for us to hear at the time, because this was over a year ago. This is the first like, person who was in military intelligence, government official. And now we find out that he's actually an advisor for the Trump administration based on this newer story. But this is the first confirmation we had that, oh my God, there's actually people on the inside who are pushing Q and who believe it to be true. And it kind of like shook both of us a little bit. I think Jake was already at the point where he was believing that it definitely was connected to the Trump administration somehow. I wasn't there yet. So when we got this information, when he asked Schaefer about this, that was a big deal for me and sort of brought me a step closer to believing, God damn, this actually is kind of in Trump's circle. This is scary. He didn't say that he was part of it. He didn't say that he thought that it was part of the Trump administration. He just, he basically endorsed it. So we talked about this on a podcast a year ago. And, you know, just another example of how I don't think the media is doing its job. I am not, I don't even call myself a journalist. But the fact that I already broke this story with Jake you know, Jake, credit to him, he's the one who got the information that we broke this story about Anthony Schaefer basically being pro-QAnon a year ago and that Media Matters is acting like they're breaking that now, like three days ago. It's absurd. 
it's very disappointing to think this is how slow the media is on this stuff. So to see that now people from the media are finally starting to contact other military intelligence conspiracy people to figure out what their stance is on Q or to look for clips of them talking about Q. I mean, good, finally. But why don't you ask, Anthony, why don't you guys ask these people about Q? You guys have probably, I don't don't know how to get Anthony Schaefer's or some of these like people's phone numbers. I don't know how to contact Michael Flynn's people. Some of these people from Media Matters probably have access to all these contacts. Why don't you guys contact all these people and start asking all of them about Q? It's only three months before the election. What if the October surprise is Q telling people to do crazy shit? Being a year late to this story, it's actually kind of dangerous, I think. To have Black Tower Radio and me breaking this story a year ago and nobody cared, nobody picked it up. I mean, where were you guys? You know, it gets it gets strange because at a certain point, it just becomes a guessing game. You know, even on office hours, Tim Heidecker and I had an interesting exchange where he was like, well, who do you think it is? Like, I think maybe Vic Berger was like, yeah, is it, could it be Bannon? And we were sort of thinking, you know, going back and forth about that. And it's like, at a certain point, since we don't, we don't know who this is. I mean, it could be a bunch of people we've never even heard of, you know, but we are getting more hints now because QAnon is in the media again, because of this massive social media purge, we are getting a lot of hints again that different officials either maybe endorsers of it, maybe pushers of it, subscribers to it, and different ones are definitely not. Or they're just really good actors and pretending not to be. So for example, listen to this clip of Sebastian Gorka being asked about QAnon from a caller um, on his show. In Denver, line four. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Doctor. I like listening to you, and I saw you on TV before, and I trust your opinion. I wanted to ask you about this Michael Flynn. He took an oath, supposedly, to the this QAnon that is supposed to be working with Trump to dismantle these global-wide um, devil-worshipping pedophile networks. And he did this with his family on the 4th of July in a video. And I was just wondering if you... Lisa, 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 Lisa. Please stop. It's all garbage. Mike Flynn didn't take a vote to anything, okay? QAnon is a scam. It's a cult. Please, Lisa, don't believe the garbage. Will you do that for me? Well, there really are pedophilia networks globally. Yeah, there are pedophiles in every country, but there's no global <laughs> network of pedophiles linked to the Illuminati or anything else, okay? It is absolute snake mm. oil. There is <laughs> evil that walks the earth because man is fallen. But QAnon and everything they spread is utter complete garbage take it from a man who was with the president in the oval office yesterday okay it's a cult it's a con stay on the line my friend uh it's actually i can't tell if the caller is seriously a q and honor or not but you you need to watch this clip too if you're just listening to it on the podcast make sure you pull this up as well but what's interesting about what you just heard in that clip is at first Gorka totally lies about Michael Flynn's QAnon oath. 
which is blatant. There's no denying that that's what Michael Flynn's oath was. So first he blatantly lies. But then what's interesting is Gorka actually appears to give a genuine opinion about what he thinks about QAnon, that he thinks it is a cult and a scam. And then he goes on to talk about how he was just with Trump, and if anybody would know about Q being real, it would be him. He was just with the president. Take it from me. It's a scam. It's a cult. That's a very revealing thing. Either Gorka's a great actor, or he's not in this loop. He's not part of this circle or layer of Trump's world. Because I don't want to speak in too specific terms. I don't know, call it like an inner circle or different circles, sort of circles overlapping with each other. But also, someone brought up the fact that QAnon, when Sebastian Gorka left the Trump administration, QAnon people started going after Gorka. I guess Q started throwing Gorka under the bus, apparently. Now, credit to the Majority Report and Sam Cedar for um, managing to find that clip in the first place. And after that clip was revealed, um, for me, that was one of the first times any Trump official has ever responded directly to a question about Q in depth without totally dodging it. Now, obviously, Gorka does dodge and he lies on the first part because Michael Flynn blatantly does take the oath. That's unmistakable. So why is Gorka still covering for people like Flynn for being part of this Q cult? That's still worth examining. Now, after this majority report clip came out, some other people started discovering that Gorka had already spoken about Q. He even made a tweet saying Q is crap um, a few months ago. And actually... A whole year ago, or two years ago, rather, in August, on a C-SPAN appearance of Sebastian Gorka, he had this to say about QAnon. And keep in mind, this in, in terms of the timeline, this is before Q started leveling any accusations against Gorka. So this is so it seems like Gorka actually started the little Gorka Q rivalry. Here's a clip from C-SPAN from August twenty-first, two thousand eighteen. They're all silly. A couple of weeks ago, it was the QAnon. Uh, oh, my gosh. The, 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 to, to, have, to have CNN, Chris Cuomo, actually dedicate a segment to the secret signaling the president is giving to the QAnon followers, it tells you that the media in America is in a sorry, sorry state. So, yes, conspiracy theories, a lot of fun, a lot of entertainment. But when CNN is actually giving them front stage uh, exposure... That's not good for reporting on anybody. Now, Gorka actually fired off, um, I guess, his most viral tweet, Q is garbage, on January 31st, 2019, um, just a few months after he appeared on C-SPAN. Now, immediately following this, Q themselves posted on 8chan, Thank you, Anons. Q posted this on March 25th, 2019, a couple months after Gorka's Q is garbage tweet. Q says, thank you, Anons, for bringing this to our attention. Be careful who you follow. Follow the money. Follow the expenses. Followed by a barrage of links and URLs to Sebastian Gorka's super PAC. Q. 
whoever Q is, is not pro Gorka. So maybe by retaliation or whatever, Gorka is anti Q because he knows that maybe Q is someone associated with Trump's people that doesn't like him. And there's an anti Gorka faction. There's different, these, these different factions. It may seem weird, but that's one way to explain his reaction. So maybe he just hates this faction within the Trump administration that's dog whistling to Q because he knows on some level they don't like him. I mean, it'd be interesting if that was the case, but it's a very interesting thing to hear. This is the first Trump official actually on record to respond to QAnon on like video like this. But then it gets sort of weirder too. There were more Trump officials and even Trump children talking about QAnon recently. Richard Grinnell, the same Trump official that had that sus phone call, casual phone chat relationship with Trump plant Fairbanks, is now openly retweeting QAnon personality Jordan Sather. Jordan Sather is like one of the biggest QAnon people who's still on Twitter. I don't know why he didn't get banned in the purge. I don't think anybody should be deplatformed in this purge, but I'm surprised his account's still online. But the fact that Richard Grinnell, high-level Trump official, former Trump official, would be retweeting Jordan Sather and saying that QAnon turns people into patriots. I mean, there was a clip, um, an appearance of Eric Trump on the Fox News, uh, the Jesse Waters show. I think it might be called The Five or something. I don't even know what his show is called. It's like a day show or an early evening show. But listen to this clip of Jesse Waters and Eric Trump sort of fuming about the fact that Twitter banned QAnon and how it's ridiculous because QAnon has, quote, uncovered a lot of great stuff. Listen to this crazy clip. Because this is the first time a Trump child... Talk about Gorka being close to the Trump administration and talking about Q. This is the, a Trump child talking about Q being good. Funny business now. Q, you know, I guess this conspiracy deal on the Internet. Twitter's basically just cracked down, eliminated about 7,000 accounts, 150 other 100,000 accounts are now in the crosshairs. Do, do you think that this is a, an attempt to kind of interfere in an election? Because... You know, Q can do some crazy stuff with the pizza stuff and the Wayfair stuff, but they've also uncovered a lot of great stuff when it comes to Epstein sure. and it comes to the deep state. I, I never saw Q as, the, as, 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 as dangerous as Antifa, but Antifa gets to run wild on the Internet. What do you think of what's going on there? Yeah, and guess what? Adam Schiff does a lot of crazy things, and Jerry Nadler and <laughs> yeah. Eric Swalwell, they also, they also do a lot of crazy stuff. Here's the fundamental problem, Jesse, that I have with it. You have some little dweeb. In Silicon Valley, right, who's 22 years old, he's a tech savant, right, he's there, he's running, you know, Twitter or one of these companies, and he literally has his finger on the power of, of a presidential election because, you know what, not everybody can afford to have cable news, not everybody, you know, can watch Fox, and guess what, you've got 100 million people in the country walking around with an iPhone or, you know, with some other device, right, actually probably more than that. So what I find most interesting about that particular clip is that both Jesse Waters and Eric Trump seem to have a deep understanding of how powerful and useful the QAnon narrative is for the re-election of Donald Trump in 2020. That in and of itself is fascinating, that they both seem fully aware of that. And you could hear the frustration in Eric Trump's voice. He's like mad 
that QAnon is getting cracked down on. Um, because clearly, on some level, this has gone beyond dog whistling. These people fully understand how powerful of a campaign tool this is. I mean, that's pretty fucking over the top. And you have to remember, Eric Trump did tweet a QAnon logo, or not tweet, Instagram posted a QAnon logo right before that rally that Trump did on Juneteenth. Now, this is also sort of weird, is that Jesse Waters, you know, decided to say a lot of stuff that was pro-QAnon on his episode of his show with Eric Trump. Just a few nights earlier, he, you know, seemed really unfiltered about it. See, actually, I would say that Jesse Waters is probably a QAnoner from the way he talked about it. Jesse Waters actually retracts his comments praising QAnon in his retraction, which Jesse Waters sent to Mediate in written form, says, While discussing the double standard of big tech censorship, I mentioned the conspiracy group QAnon, which I don't support or believe in. My comments should not be mistaken for giving credence to this fringe platform. Bullshit, dude. And just more evidence that QAnon as a movement, that Q as a poster, is just a partisan, you know, Trump-supporting person who's now basically encouraging just electoral politics, partisan stuff. On July 30th, Q posted just a link to a Tucker Carlson segment. That's it. That was Q's post. Everything that Q talks about, to me, is just a limited hangout. It just kind of reinforces the idea that Tucker's program is some kind of op, that Q is some kind of op. You know, they're just running, trying to to steer people who are anti-authority or anti-establishment in a certain direction, in a partisan direction, essentially. You know, just examples of what Q is posting about recently, it's just gone full-on mail-in ballot voter fraud conspiracy, COVID hoax stuff constantly, the idea that the Dems are trying to crash the economy to make Trump look bad. You know, it's just sort of this quadruple-fisted, generic, cookie-cutter menagerie of conspiracies all at once. Sort of mixed messaging, actually, because also Q has been saying that COVID is a bioweapon, but it's also a hoax that the Dems are just trying to hype up to crash the economy. I mean, the logic actually doesn't even hold up within the internal Q framework anymore. It's just really kind of dumb bullshit at this point. I was hoping that Q would get more creative. So, you know, I I don't want to like encourage anything, but I still think it's possible Q has got some kind of October surprise coming. There's going to be some, possibly something there, but it's not looking good because the cleverness of what Q is trying to do now to me is just not as apparent as before. It's like it's run out of things to use. It's sort of spinning its wheels. Whoever this little group of people or person is, I mean, they don't really have anything. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of it's just unoriginal kind of pair. I mean, just posting a Tucker Carlson segment, that's a cue drop now. I mean, come on. That's lazy shit, dude. Q, punch it up, Q. 
you know what? I'm giving you too much credit. Your October surprise, whatever you got, it's probably going to be bullshit. Trump's, you know, might do some crazy October surprise or, or bar maybe, but I'm not even counting on it anymore. Total weak sauce. So I know I just did quite a bit on QAnon and I'm sorry for that. But I just wanted to end this segment of the podcast with one actual positive story about QAnon that we rarely actually hear about. So I just wanted to briefly mention this new story um, from Ben Collins of NBC News. Um, I don't know him as a reporter. I obviously don't care for NBC News as an outlet. Uh, uh, but this particular story is actually good. Um, it covers QAnon and, you know, a lot of the things that they've been talking about on the QAnon Anonymous podcast about how QAnon has reached and crossed over into sort of the hippie, new age, um, health nut sort of Instagram influencer, like health, health zone somehow. And, you know, you remember that woman who I talked about on a previous episode who uh, destroyed that mask display in Target and filmed her meltdown and then when the police came to her house to arrest her she filmed that also and on film said that she was the official spokesperson for QAnon and that the police needed to call Donald Trump now I talk a lot about on this podcast about how people who believe in QAnon might already be mentally ill or have mentally ill episodes happening in their life that draw them to this and in this particular instance this person who was in that video her actual real name is Melissa Ryan Lively. She has actually admitted, fully acknowledged, that she is bipolar and she was suffering from a hypomanic incident. And that she basically realized, like, right afterwards that she had, like, destroyed her life and, like, doxxed herself and, you know, blew up her spot online from this, essentially, a bipolar incident. And... I'm not going to read really any sections from the article because I recommend you read it yourself, but she's interviewed in this article, Melissa Ryan Lively, and she fully acknowledges and explains how she got sucked into QAnon, um, you know, why she regrets what she did. But I wish that this was like a sit-down interview with her. I mean, at this point, I feel like an article explaining this is not going to convince anybody who's who's like a hardcore QAnoner. But if maybe some of those people saw this woman being interviewed on camera face to face, they might, it might actually click something in their brain. where like, Oh man, like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being optimistic, but I kind of feel like if other people fully understood how this is a mentally ill thing and it's not something you should be ashamed of necessarily. It's just that you might need help. Maybe that what might help some people. I don't know, but it's one of the only positive stories I've seen in this whole thing so far. Donald Trump was finally asked at a press conference about QAnon. And uh, you're going to be shocked, utterly shocked about what his answer was. So he was actually asked about the runoff election win of GOP candidate Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is an open QAnon supporter running for an actual house seat right now. And apparently this runoff victory 
has given her a very strong position in the upcoming election. She's probably going to win. Donald Trump congratulated her on Twitter. This is a full-blown QAnon supporting congressional candidate who's actually said that MS-13 assassinated Seth Rich. So here's, uh, here's what Trump said when he was asked about it. Take a listen. Okay. And then I would ask you, um, you congratulated Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene in a tweet. You called her a future Republican star. Um, Greene has been a proponent of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, she said it's something that should be would be worth listening to. Um, do you agree with her on that? Well, she did very well in the election. She won by a lot. She was very popular. Uh, she comes from a great state. And she uh, had a tremendous victory, so absolutely, I did congratulate her. Please, go ahead. We have QAnon and her decision to embrace that, that conspiracy theory. Do you agree with her on that? That was the question? Go ahead, I just wanted to ask you, um, what ails your brother Robert? And did that surprise you? Total dodge. And it also pisses me off that the other reporter just allowed Trump to, to not answer the question and just went to her question. But, uh, yeah, I guess Trump wants a dog whistle but not commit to talking about Q. Cool, dude. I'm going to totally shift gears here now. Did you know one of the arguably the second most prolific serial rapist in the United States who also happens to be a celebrity next to Bill Cosby is Ron Jeremy, also known as probably one of the most famous male porn stars in the country. Have you even heard about this before? And I just want to get this out of the way first. Are we not hearing about this because a porn star raping other sex workers or porn stars is just not as concerning to us as Bill Cosby drugging and raping women in his apartment? Is it not as concerning to people when a woman is dressed in a sexy outfit on a porn set and she gets raped as it is for a, a, a different kind of more typical rape. I would say that I think, yeah, it's for some reason we've been conditioned to think that it's not, I don't know if I would call it rape culture because I hate using that sort of those buzzwords, but there is sort of a culture of, acceptance even among people who are not conservative we're like yeah that's you know well, do we really know she got raped i mean she was on a porn set she was getting paid to have sex you know on camera i feel like there's a the people don't and here's the here's my thinking on this if you're an adult film actor actress sex worker i feel that you as a person in this profession have, need to have a very clear set of boundaries and an understanding of where how those boundaries are set. So for him to have this many allegations against him from people even in the industry, at this moment in time, according to um, Yahoo News, Ron Jeremy um, was arrested and brought into Los Angeles Superior Court on four sexual assault charges. Four, four different women. The LA County Sheriff's Department actually got reports of 30 different incidences that actually are not outside of the statute of limitations. So these happened recently enough that he can still be charged. So 
I'm not going to read these in detail. The accusations are very, very disturbing. A lot of them involve Ron Jeremy just groping female fans at conventions and in public uh, without their consent, pulling their breasts out of their clothing, sticking his fingers under their dress in their skirt and, you know, even penetrating them without even saying anything. He's, he seems insane. And I'm not saying he's, he's totally cognizant of what he's doing, but it just does seem like he was a serial rapist. There's descriptions in these reports where he would just be hanging out with a woman and then he would like tell her to look somewhere and then put her hands down on the railing and then literally just like start fucking her with no discussion, not even any foreplay, not a kiss, not even an attempt, just immediate penetration, rape. It's actually, I I can't even read to you any more of it. It just sucks because I'm a very sex positive person. I have no problem with pornography. I think that you know, there's definitely bad people in any industry. Um, the industry as a whole is not bad. It's not an industry that is inherently, you know, harmful towards women. I don't subscribe to that. I do think there are just bad elements within the industry. But what I think to me, the actual, the real bad part comes in is when people in the industry silence other people and there's a culture of silence just like there was with Bill Cosby, just like there was with Jimmy Savile, where people all around these people know about their history of sexual assault, know about their history of rape, and have just like been burying it and you know don't talk about it and actually also help protect that story from even getting out there. Ron Jeremy has been doing this for the last like 40 years. That's why I say that he's basically a serial rapist. It's pretty disturbing. The accounts are insane. How many different allegations are against him? It's not just the 30 different women that reported rapes and sexual assaults of the LA County Sheriff's Department. I would say from what I've read, it's somewhere like, I mean, it's definitely over 50 different women have accused him. So, at a certain point, you have to think, wow, these people, even some of these people went to a porn convention as his fans, and they still felt like they're raped and sexually assaulted. Hey, maybe I should take these seriously and not just write this off because I don't respect sex workers the same way I respect someone who's not a sex worker. So it's just wild to me how little media attention this is getting. Speaking of other shitty things that are being enabled in the entertainment industry, The recent comments by Spotify CEO Daniel Ek about how musicians need to work harder and uh, musicians can't just record music every three or four years and think that's going to be enough. Um, It's uh, pretty infuriating to hear this, you know, piece of shit billionaire try to dictate the way musicians are supposed to create art. And I know I complain an awful lot about Red Bull Music Rebel Music Academy, but yes, Spotify is far, far worse for artists, and it's an insult. The Spotify CEO is a total piece of shit, and this company, Spotify, needs to be boycotted. 
Musicians make pennies off of their streams. This company needs to be shut down. But frankly, so does Apple and every other massive corporate streaming service that makes money off of music streaming. I, I don't know what the video streaming thing is like, like how much money you make if you put your thing on Amazon or whatever. But I would imagine there's you make more. With Spotify, you make virtually nothing. The amount of money I've made through my entire record label on Spotify is a joke. So I'm going to remove all of my music off Spotify, all of my record labels music off Spotify. I encourage everybody out there listening to cancel their Spotify account. And, you know, remember what it was like when you would actually download your files. Like the whole streaming thing is just so it makes listening to music more lazy and less investment very disposable. Why not get get back into downloading files? <laughs> like that's some kind of old school thing to do, downloading things. I mean, I even have problems with Bandcamp. But look, Bandcamp is, you know, they're trying to do no, you know, they they stopped doing the revenue share like every once one Friday out of every month now during the pandemic. They're they're, you know, they're sort of giving back a little bit. But at the end of the day, all these places are corporations. It's always the best idea to be able to distribute things yourself. But, you know, you lose a lot of reach if you don't put your music through like iTunes and these distribution networks. You even lose reach if you don't put it through Spotify, right? So I understand it. But think about the future. I mean, do we want to make this more disposable? I think there needs to be some kind of rebellion against Spotify eventually. And I don't know if it's too late to stop things like Spotify or not, but it's definitely a bigger problem than Red Bull Music Academy. You know, Red Bull Music Academy is a different kind of problem for me, where I think it sort of toxified the culture in the scene a little bit and made people too acquiescent towards corporate money in a way that really surprised me. The Spotify thing is like, this is a behemoth corporation that is actually going to like ruin musicians' revenue and it needs to be stopped. There's really no two ways about it. So I'm going to have to think about that moving forward, what I can do to help fight against entities like Spotify. So I guess I'll just end this episode of Media Roots Radio little bit of uh, reflecting back on what we talked about if anybody out there just learned about QAnon or has a relative or a friend who's getting really sucked into it and, and you're sort of concerned about them and and you don't really feel like maybe you know enough about it to talk to them or that you just need someone to talk to about it to vent to or or whatever uh, feel free to DM me on Twitter my username is at fluorescent gray. I've actually been talking with quite a few people since the QAnon episode came out on Media Roots about just their own struggles and dealing with friends and relatives of, of theirs that are getting really sucked into QAnon. So I think maybe for some people it just helps to share those thoughts with someone else so that they, they'll understand. It's such a weird subject that I just don't think most people understand how to even address it especially with their own relatives or friends. So yeah, reach out to me. And also just keep in mind too that 
actual victims of molestation, of long-term abuse, of child abuse, are actually sort of lessening the impact of their voice and their stories. And you, in some ways, are harming them by fixating on something that you imagine exists that there's no real evidence of. This sort of overarching satanic pedophile network where all these children are being sold into sex slavery. There are real victims all over the country. And I had one reach out to me who, you know, said that he just wishes people who are into QAnon and Pizzagate to this degree would understand that they are actually hurting real victims of child abuse because it makes their stories seem like they're just minuscule. A guy getting molested by his own uncle, for example, or a babysitter long-term or raped as a child. It just doesn't seem as exciting, I guess, to people as a satanic pedophile network. But that kind of stuff I just told you about happens every day in this country, and children are harmed by it all the time. You know, there are things to get involved in. There are counseling centers where you can get involved and you can volunteer at some kind of counseling center for people who have been abused if you want to help people. A lot of people who call the suicide hotline have suffered from abuse. Learn how to help in that way. There are ways to help. Learn about the actual statistics of child abuse in this country. Channel your efforts into something that could actually help real people. If you really care. And I, maybe I'm just, this is all for naught. I'm making a plea to people who just will not listen to me. But I just... I just want you to realize that, you know, if you really care about other people, think about how you can really help, not this sort of fantasy version of helping, which is, I just saw a video of some guy threatening to do a mass burial of leftist pedophiles in his backyard and just find them for me and I'll round them up and shoot them in the head and we'll use wild hogs to kill them if you'd rather see them get tortured to death and all this stuff. And it's like, what are you talking about, dude? There are pedophiles that probably live in your neighborhood that you don't even give a second look at because you just think they're your friendly neighbor. I mean, what in the fuck is wrong with you? Like, open your eyes and see what the world really is instead of this fantasy. And also, on the subject of China, try to remember that most of the discussions we're having are being spurred on by these media stories trying to make China look really bad right now. And the argument shouldn't be about how bad China is, if it's not bad, you know, versus being bad. It's try to reframe the argument back to actual problems that we need to deal with and things that make it very hypocritical to go after China for. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Media Roots Radio today. And as always... If you'd like to get access to all of our bonus content, which is one episode per month is exclusive to our Patreon subscribers, you can donate for as little as $5 per month or per creation. And by doing this, um, we, we now have a private RSS feed where if you subscribe via Patreon, um, you can also get the bonus episodes downloaded directly to your device. So our recent bonus episode is a 
four-hour-long episode on the Masonic history of the United States. Um, and that episode will probably become unlocked maybe a month and a half or two months from now. Our QAnon Part 2 episode, we're going to unlock that in the next month or so as well. If you want to catch up on this stuff as it's actually airing, the next bonus episode is going to be Part 2 of that. I dare to say it's actually going to be better than Part 1. I'm, I'm putting actually even more work into Part 2 of the Masonic History episode. It's pretty crazy how Masonic the 1800s was <laughs> in American history. So I'm excited for that. And I'm also excited that we've had a lot of new patrons. Thank you so much, guys, for supporting Media Roots over the years. Really appreciate you. And if you want to become a subscriber, if you're not already, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Take care.